Well, we've certainly had the blessing of some wonderful music to sing and praise the Lord with here this morning. As we always do, I should point out, perhaps occasionally there are Sundays where it just really stands out. To me, this is one of those. Wonderful. That's a great hymn right there that we just sang. Praise the Lord. Let's open our Bibles to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. I've been doing this long enough where I guess you can say one of the one of the rewards for the fruit of the labor of doing it for so many years is that I I now will cover things in preaching and teaching that I have before. Um, And such is the case with the book of James. I'm sure I've told you this, and some of you are around for this. From what I can tell by my computer, it was like eight years ago, we went verse by verse through the book of James on Thursday nights. And I save all of that on my trusty Windows 95 computer in my office, which still works. And um, anyway... uh, I don't think it's cheating to draw upon work that I did years and years ago to, to consult and see the study that I did and see what I wrote down. But, boy, the, 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 the study, you're familiar with these if you come on Thursday nights. The, the, the study that we did looked like it was a really good one. So, basically, I just grabbed this and, and made this uh, uh, what I'll base, like, preaching through this passage of Scripture on today. But... Um, You ever have a sneeze coming and it gets stuck? It's like, is it, it's, is it going to come out or is it, it's going to stay in there for now? All right. In any case, uh, on the, when I write these studies, I always write an introduction to it. And I start off on Thursdays before I read the actual scripture by reading this little introduction just to set some context. And when I was reading through this one that I wrote years ago, wow, that's actually pretty good. So... I'm going to, I, edifying, I thought. So I'm going to read this. I'm going to say a prayer first, and then I'll read this, and then I'll read the passage that's before us today. And we'll talk about this passage of Scripture because it's a very important one, okay? All right, let's bow before the Lord, and let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, most holy Lord God, it's been good for me, and I trust for all of my brothers and sisters to be here together today so far just to sing and to pray, to turn our hearts towards You, to bow our hearts before You, and to exalt You and to praise You and thank You for Your grace, Your mercy, Your love, Your power, Your salvation. All wrapped up in that You sent Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Your only begotten Son, to redeem us. You have sealed our place with You as saved people by the Holy Spirit in us. And we know You, Almighty God, the Holy Spirit, living in us and working in us, You are also our Teacher. And as we read through the Scriptures, blessed, wonderful Scriptures which we know You used people to write them down, but we know it's Your Word. As we read through Your Word, there You are in us, teaching us. And Lord, there's so much I can see, we can all see, that even in the words of the New Covenant, having been set free from sin entirely by Your grace, You still have much that You exhort us with and command us to and call us to. We thank You that it is You who works in us to will and to do for Your good pleasure even as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so, Lord, as I read and preach on this passage of Scripture, here we are again as as these words are written down to challenge people who would consider teaching and to challenge 
them and everyone, really, with how we use our words, our tongues. We've already seen some of that in this letter, but now here we have this passage before us. And I pray, Lord God, that You would teach all of us to do that which seems impossible to us, which is to tame the tongue. says in this passage that if someone can tame their tongue, they're a perfect man. That sounds straightforward enough to me that we ought to give attention to it. We pray for your guidance and your teaching now, thanking you that it's the strength of you in us that works these things out. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So anyway, here's this little introduction to chapter 3 that I wrote years ago. Hopefully this will be edifying for you, as it was for me to read it. Chapter 3 starts with a word of great wisdom concerning the desire to become teachers. It is quite common and natural for a person to desire to teach as they themselves grow in knowledge. But there is much more to teaching in the Christian church than having knowledge. Right? A simple look at what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1-7 concerning overseers or pastors in the church certainly shows that. James brings up two important things in this chapter to consider before taking on the mantle of teacher. The first will be in the passage of Scripture that we look at now, the next is in the second half of the chapter, which, Lord willing, we'll do next week. If you're going to teach, you'd better be able to control your tongue. Let me say that again. If you're going to teach, and I don't just mean pastors, if you're going to teach others, you'd better be able to control your tongue. Knowledge Passion and eloquence cannot cover up an undisciplined, harsh, unloving, ungracious, crude, obscene, rude manner of talk. The Apostle Paul said, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Colossians 4.6 Speech. What we say, and even how we say it, is a function of the tongue. Thus, James' teaching here is vital and timeless. It should also be pointed out that while James issues this admonishment in the context of people becoming teachers... The things said concerning the tongue are axiomatic and should be taken to heart by every Christian. We all ought to want to control our tongues. Teachers face a stricter judgment, but we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Let me say that again. Teachers face a stricter judgment, but we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We should all desire to grow and to glorify God in all that we do. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, Proverbs 18 says, and we should all learn to discipline our speech and offer it to God for His use. Here's James chapter 3, right in the beginning of the chapter. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man. The idea of perfection there is, is, means, it means fully grown up. Some modern translations might render it mature. In the New King James, there's a marginal note that says that. But the idea is, if you can bridle your tongue, you're fully grown up. 
perfect man, also able to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest, a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Listen to this. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. That bears repeating. With it, our tongues, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. Here's some simple clarity for you. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. James dropping the illustrations left and right on us this morning, right? Horses and ships and forest fires and uh, the things we just read, the, the spring and the trees, the fruit trees, all trying to get through, get through, get through to us. Number one, If you desire to teach, make sure you can control your mouth. And every bit as true, but perhaps ancillary because of the context, every Christian ought to be striving to get control of their mouth. And we live in the much more technologically complicated world 2,000 years removed from when James wrote this, which means your tongue can also be expressed how? Right? Uh, 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 Post. Yeah? It needs to be bridled. It needs to be controlled. I suppose the first best thing to say is that The Apostle Paul told us that one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, that is, one of the things that is worked in us because we are believers and have been sealed with God's Holy Spirit, is self-control. And very much, when Paul said, listed that as a fruit of the Spirit, perhaps there were other expressions of self-control that he had in mind. But clearly James, when he writes here, has the concept of self-control in mind when he's talking about the tongue, right? When he talks about a person who's able to control their own tongue being a perfect man, he's not talking about like the influence of other people over me. Of course, God works in us, like I prayed before, to will and to do for His good pleasure, but you know that that's the second half of a sentence. The first half of that sentence is what? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in us to will and to do for His good pleasure. So God works it in. You work it out. Self-control. 
is one of those things that God by His power works in us, but you by your living, drawing upon and relying upon the nourishment in the Spirit that comes from a close relationship with God. Work it out and live it out. The life of living and walking with God is not a fatalistic, robotic one. It's very important you understand that. Let me say that again. The life that we live with God is not a fatalistic, in other words, everything is just fate. It's not a fatalistic or robotic one where just whatever happens must have been what God intended to happen and so you apply no effort in life. God works in you. Listen, streams of living water, salvation, flowing in us like a river. Your job is to dip into that and live it. Live it out. Self-control is such a thing. God, by the power of His Spirit, works in us. And then you, through prayer and diligence, 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 work it out. Christians are able to work out things in their lives that non-Christians cannot because of the well that we can dip our buckets into. Right? The well is within you. It's right there. It's why you're commanded to not be drunk with wine where is an excess, but rather what? Be filled with the Spirit. He's there. He's there. He came into you the moment you believed. He sealed you the moment you believed. But you're told in an ongoing basis to be filled again and again and again and again that you may work out what He works in. Self-control is one of those fruits. And James very much has, I believe, self-control in mind when he speaks about controlling your tongue. Verse 1 starts by setting the, the direct context for what he's talking about. James does not necessarily have in mind with this exhortation, nor in the passage that follows, which we'll address next week, not necessarily just every single Christian and, consult and, 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 and controlling their mouth, though he goes there. The thing that he has in mind first is this idea of being a teacher. My brethren, let... Not many of you become teachers. Should very first of all perhaps be pointed out that there's a balance in the New Testament to that statement, isn't there? In Hebrews chapter 5, the writer there rebukes his readers by saying to them that some of you ought to be teachers by now. So there's a balance to that. There is a place, obviously, in the church for human teachers. Teaching is a gift. It ought to be used. Pastors are commanded if they even have a desire for the office. One of the things they're required to be is apt to teach. Ephesians 4 tells us that some are called to be various things, including teachers for the equipping of the saints and the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, chapter 3 actually, for the bringing us to the, that, that it speaks of that unity of spirit, endeavoring to keep it. So there's a place for human teachers, but James says here, listen, let not many of you become teachers. Why? Knowing that we, stop there, when he says we, what does he do? He includes himself. So he's speaking of that which he knows. All right? And James, we've given you some of this context already. James is from the best of the understanding of the context of the New Testament narrative I can gather. 
the pastor, if you will, that's what we'd say in the modern terms, of the Jerusalem church. He's not one of the apostles per se, one of the original group. He was a half-brother of the Lord, but he was a teacher in the church. He was a pastor. And so he includes himself here and says what? We shall receive a stricter judgment. Why? Why do pastors receive, not just pastors, by the way, but teachers? He doesn't say here, don't let many of you desire to become pastors. He says, don't let many of you desire to become teachers. So he's not trying to discourage people necessarily, but what? Why does he say this? Uh, Teachers obviously use their words. It's not all that they use. Teachers also use their conduct. Stay tuned. That's next week's sermon. The second half of all of this and the end of the chapter has to do with your conduct. All right? So that's part of this. We're not omitting that on purpose. It's just not obtainable in one sitting to, to grapple it all, grapple with it all. But teachers use their words. What do the words of teachers do? They influence. Teachers who speak influence what people think about God. Teachers who speak influence what people think about salvation, what they think about church, what they think about other brothers and sisters. People who teach wield great influence because we are designed and created by God for relationships and within those relationships, communication. Human beings, perhaps, not perhaps, definitely, more so than anything else that God has made, are shaped and influenced by what they listen to and by what they see. That'll, again, be next week. But by what they listen to and what they hear. Words can manipulate for good or for evil, right? God is powerful, all-powerful, and able to do whatever He wants, right? Yes or no? Yes? And yet, even though God is all-powerful and can do whatever He wants, how does He still, all these years later, communicate with people? Through words. Through words. Through words that were written down centuries and centuries ago and still strike us as direct communication from God. Teachers speak. They teach and they open their mouths or they write. And this has tremendous effect on others, which means what? God being righteous and God being ultimately fair holds teachers to a stricter judgment. That means someone who teaches, like every other Christian, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what we've done in our bodies. But teachers will give a stricter judgment because teachers affect what other people do. Right? And that's why James says, not many of you ought to be teachers. Because you need to understand that it's not a hobby. It's not a chance or an opportunity for you to display your knowledge. It's not an opportunity for you to flex your powers to manipulate or control people. It is not an opportunity for you to promote yourself or put yourself forward. It is not an opportunity for you to tear other people down or tear down other things that you feel like stand in the way of whatever it is you are pursuing. The teacher who teaches on behalf of God has one job, and that is to glorify Christ and to use His words or her words, because women certainly are teachers among other women, among children, maybe not standing up publicly in church, but men and women certainly are gifted to teach in various situations. What is the job of men and women who teach? It is to glorify Jesus Christ. It is to bring building and edification and encouragement to people who love Jesus Christ. It is to help stir up love and good works 
among people who love Jesus Christ. It is to keep the gospel front and center in the minds of Christians and in the minds of people who maybe aren't Christians but are exploring and are interested and maybe God is reaching out to through them, etc. You can think of all the different things. That's what teachers are called to do, not to serve themselves. So the judgment is stricter because the teacher with his words points people this way and that. Think of it this way. I I mentioned this in my prayer before. What was one of the ministries that I made reference to in my prayer before this sermon of the Holy Spirit? In us, He what? Come on. There you go. I knew somebody would find it. Teaches us, right? So what is the human teacher doing? The human teacher is maybe providing the audible encounter with what it is that God the Holy Spirit is working within us. When I read this book, when I exposit the words of this book, when I take the time to make sure we all understand the words of this book and then encourage us to be doers of the words of this book, I'm not doing anything that's mine. I'm a mouthpiece for what God Himself already is in you. You're listening. Listen, what a teacher says can interfere with, come in competition, come into conflict with, perhaps even undermine what the Holy Spirit tries to do in someone. And listen, I know you have your theological views about God and how He's unconquerable and everything else, but listen, there's reasons why false teachers are refuted and rebuked in the Scripture. There's reason why Christians, actual, true, born-again Christians, are encouraged to be wary of people who teach falsely. It's because the words that teachers say can really mess up what God, the Holy Spirit Himself, is trying to work out. It is the Spirit who is our teacher. He's given us the Scriptures. He has anointed some humans to stand up and teach. And James says, you better take that seriously. That's why teachers face a stricter judgment. Because so much is at stake. What did Jesus say about causing one of his little ones to stumble? Find the rope, find the millstone, and find the water and throw them in. Right? Why? Because there's so much at stake. Why should you be especially careful if you're going to undertake teaching? Here's where... part of this chapter that's best known comes out. It's the why. All this bit about the tongue is the why. Why should you be especially careful about undertaking the task of becoming a teacher? There's two reasons in this chapter. The first one is for today. The second one is for next week. The one for today is because people have such a brutal, awful, Time. People have such a rotten track record in general of using their words, of using their mouths, of using their tongues, as James puts it. I believe he speaks rhetorically basically when he says, nobody controls their tongue. You want to be, be a teacher of others when you're a slanderer. You want to be a teacher of others when you're a liar. You want to be a teacher of others when you're a manipulator. Or perhaps even worse than all of that, you want to be a teacher of others when you have no idea of what's coming out of your mouth. That's the main reason. That's the first reason that he gives. What's it say? Verse 2. For we all stumble in many things. Notice he includes himself in there. There is, and listen, that's true of myself. It was true of James. I stumble in things all the time. I'm a man. I battle and struggle with the flesh and with sin, with the old nature, with the world, all the same things that everybody else does. We all stumble in many things. But there's one thing in particular that if you're going to be a teacher, 
you better have some sense of self-control over this. That's your mouth. And your conduct next week, right? But your mouth. We all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in what? Word. What is he? He's all grown up. The idea there is perfect. The idea of perfect is that a project was begun and it was brought to completion. What did Paul say in Ephesians? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Workmanship. The idea there is a work project. God has gone to work on us. We don't perfect ourselves. God has gone to work on us. Right? The idea here that James says is the person who can control their tongue, the person who doesn't stumble in word, that person is the project all done. Fully grown up. Does that mean sinless? No, of course not. In case you haven't figured it out, none of us on this side of the grave will ever attain that spotless, sinless perfection. The mature Christian... The truly saved, understanding Christian is broken when he confronts his own sin and is humbled, but then is overjoyed and grateful and blessed to know of God's grace continually coming back, coming back, coming back. When we sin abounds, grace abounds even more. God's grace is sufficient. He sustains us through all of our weakness and all of our sin. But we know certainly that we're not perfected in that sense here, right? But if a man or a woman can find in the power of God the gift, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in them of self-control, self-control over your words. Therein, brothers and sisters, listen, listen, listen. Therein, brothers and sisters, is the maturity that's necessary to be a teacher of others. If you can't control your mouth, don't teach others. If you can control your mouth, then you're mature. Then you're mature. Right? That's where he's going with all this. In the second half of this sentence, here come just like in rapid-fire succession, these illustrations, right? And, it's, and why, why so many? I mean, he's re- you have to think about things like that when you exposit Scripture. It's like, in my, in my view, it, if the passage ended right there, that's enough. I get it. But then here comes James, bang, 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 with these illustrations to make sure you understand the place that a person's tongue, the place that a person's words have in their life and what it shows about them with regards to whether or not they ought to teach others and really just what kind of a relationship with God they really have. Verse 2 started off, For we all stumble in many things. New sentence. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Right? What does he say there? If you can control your tongue, you've you've got the entirety of who you are under control. And by the way, notice the, the... Notice the inference to self-control that that is. Notice it does not say, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man and God is able to bridle his whole body. He's talking about self-control. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. If you can control your tongue, you can control anything in yourself. That's the idea. As Christians who recognize that God is sovereign, we need to be very careful not to be afraid of this concept of self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit, and when exercised, especially with our mouths, it brings great glory to God. It separates you from this lost 
and evil and fallen world that we live in. Because the lost and evil and fallen world we live in now runs on gossip and slander and calling each other out on Twitter or on Facebook, right? The whole memes, right? The whole world seems to run on insults. Yes or no? I mean, you know, some politician says, I don't care where you you are really, you know, on this or that, but some politician you don't like says something and you can instantly go online and find all sorts of just hammering them, destroying them, making fun of them, abusing them. There's no dignity left in anything. There's no, there's no desire among people to find just like some ability, even if they disagree on things, to, 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 to try to like work together to find like some kind of better day-by-day experience here. Everything is like, slam this, slam that, slam at this, slam that. The culture has normalized the loose tongue. The culture esteems highly the person who can be the most cutting, irreverent, and quickly insulting with their words. Look what so-and-so posted about that. Not what the Bible says, guys. Not what the Bible says. The Bible says, bridle it. And if you can bridle that, you can control your whole body. In other words, every faculty of life. You want to be complete and perfect? Because obviously, life, self-control, involves controlling lots of things. Eating, drinking, sleeping, human sexuality, Uh, relationships, handling money, handling time, being a good steward. There's all kinds of self-control, but the hardest thing to control is your mouth and your words. And if you can walk closely with God and draw upon His strength and be filled with His Spirit and produce that fruit of of self-control over your own tongue, all right, the rest of it, the rest of it will fall in the line after that. Tongue has power. Words have power to do things that nothing else in your life does. You can destroy someone with a word. You can lie. You can play. It's not fun. You know, we live in a world now where even anonymously things can be said that are fictitious and malicious completely. I and my family have been the victim of some of that. And you can really wreck a person's spirit. You can also make a brother or sister. Look, look. Listen, God does it all. I know that. We're not robots, brothers and sisters. We're called to do things. Wake up to that. Your words can wreck somebody's spirit. Your words can build somebody's spirit. Your words can cause someone to love God more. I don't care what theological school of thought that may violate. God has called you to things. He has called you to do things. He has called you to stop doing things. And you're called to obey. You bridle your tongue, you can bridle the whole thing. Indeed. Ready? We put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us. And we turn the whole body. The illustration is to try to show that just like your self-control over the tongue leads to being able to be completely mature and grown up just in the same way that a giant, and giant, I mean that. I mean, horses are one of the most massive. And you ever notice, horses aren't fat. They're all muscle. You ever see that? 
You ever watch a horse run like in super slow motion in high definition or something like that? Every muscle just flexes and, ah, it's beautiful. I mean, to this day, even motors are measured with what? Horse power, right? Because the horse is like the epitome of, of of like God's moving things. You think of the charioteers and the the cavalry soldiers and you even maybe think of horse racing and you you know you can put a bit in a horse's mouth and that massive power of that animal can be controlled by a child if the horse is tamed and has that bit in the mouth it could be made to go it could be made to stop it could be made to turn, even though you have no power over that animal. Just like a strong horse can be controlled with just a little bit, so you can find self-control in your whole life if you just learn to control your mouth. Look also at ships. Now our submarine officer here. The person who drives the submarine is called a pilot, correct? Is he called the pilot? Or do they have another name for it? I always thought that was cool because I was in the Air Force and obviously pilots fly planes, but you might not realize that in some naval settings, I guess, the person who steers the ship is also called the pilot. And that, that's how it is here in the, in, the, in the scripture, right? Look also at ships. Although they're so large, and are driven by fierce winds. Well, submarines aren't driven by winds, but they're driven by waves. But you get the idea, right? They're turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Think about that. Think about a, a surface vessel in James's day, right? The age of sail, right? And the wind can be blowing... Correct me if I'm wrong about this, but the, 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 a ship doesn't just go in the direction that the wind is blowing. The wind could be blowing one way, and if the blend, wind catches the sail, the rudder can still steer the ship in a different direction. I mean, you can manipulate a giant boat on the surface of the water with wind that's moving in a different... The wind! You can compete with the wind. You can manipulate the effect of the wind with what? A rudder. Pilot can stand there, whether it's a wheel or it's you know this in the back or whatever it is. The pilot can steer a ship with just one little piece of it. One of my favorite movies is uh, Master and Commander: Far Side of the World, Russell Crowe movie, right? And there's a line in that movie where he, the, I don't want to, no spoiler alerts here, but the, but the, um, he's commanding a much smaller vessel who's chasing a much larger French vessel in the South Atlantic and then in the South Pacific. And they realize they have absolutely no chance against this big French ship, except if they can get behind them, they can take them out at the rudder. Because, as Russell Crowe's character says, they're vulnerable there just like we are. In World War II, what was thought to be the most powerful battleship ever made, the German battleship Bismarck, on its first combat deployment, there wasn't a ship on the surface that had a chance against it. With one shot fired at something like 16 miles away, I think, it sank a British cruiser called the Hood, which was the pride of the British Navy, with one shot, like miles and miles away. But some British biplanes, they still flew biplanes then, took off from a British carrier, and, and the Bismarck was hit in the rudder and lost its steering. And then the rest of the British ships moved in for the kill and sank the Bismarck, the most powerful warship ever made at the time, because of the rudder. That's what your tongue is like in relation to the rest of your body. It's your rudder. You learn to steer your tongue. You can steer your whole body. 
you learn to control your tongue, you can control your whole life. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. A rudder can steer a ship, a bit, and a horse's mouth can steer a horse. Look at the next sentence. See how great a forest. And I know, if you're like me, you get the point already, right? But he still goes on. Because if that shows you nothing else, this is really, really important. Right? I mean, we already get it. But here we go. Here's some more. See how great a forest, a little fire, kindles. Right? Coming into summertime, dry time. Coming into the time of year when you hear news reports about wildfires. Sometimes very smart and talented firefighters and other people are able to trace the source of some of these fires. Very often some of these fires that burn out of control for weeks at a time and, and destroy just square mile after square mile after square mile, sometimes they can be traced to someone not properly putting out a campfire. Did you know that? You've heard that before? Right? Somebody walks away from their campsite and doesn't properly put it out. It's particularly dry. It can catch and it can spread. It can just one little thing can destroy square miles. That's what the tongue is. That's what a word is like. That's what a lie is like. That's what that gossipy trifle is like. That's what that little shot that you take at somebody behind their back is like. It's like the campfire in the dry woods that's not properly attended to. Get it under control is what James is trying to say. The tongue is a fire. Look at this phrase. A world of iniquity so set among our members that it defiles the whole body. He just said before that if you get it under control, you can bridle the whole body. Now he turns around and goes, shows you the flip side of the coin. It's so set among our members. Notice, it, it, our members is like the rest of our body, our lives. Our, our words, our speech is such a part of my entire existence that I can cause a world of iniquity. I can light my whole world on fire with my mouth in a self-destructive and irresponsible way. It defiles the whole body. It's a world of iniquity, right? All manner of wickedness and sin and unrighteousness flows forth from it. It, Look at this, perhaps the most telling thing. It, it sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. Gehenna. Hell. That means hell. James apparently understood the words of his half-brother, the Lord Jesus, who talked about hell being a place where the smoke of torment goes up forever and ever and ever. The Apostle John spoke of it as a lake of fire. He's writing in the book of Revelation, right? That's what's behind That's what's behind the propensity of the human to use their words for evil. It's okay. Right? Now, every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. And that was 2,000 years ago. And so, generally speaking, we're even better at it now. Right? So we can tame birds. We can tame animals. We can tame other creatures that we don't even really know how to communicate with. 
but no man can tame the tongue. Now, when he says that, don't do what some Christians do. There are Christians who would actually look at that phrase that no man can tame the tongue, and they would say that you shouldn't try to tame the tongue because the Bible says no man can tame the tongue. And in some twisted, wrong way of trying to understand the sovereignty of God, they would say, no man can tame the tongue. Whatever you say is just God saying it through you, or something like that. Understand, please, what a rhetorical statement is, right? If I say to you, no one can tame their tongue, I'm not saying it because I'm releasing you to just give up and say whatever you want about whomever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. No, it's a lament. No one can tame the tongue, right? The same Bible also says, I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. The same Bible speaks in the book of Revelation of those who overcome by the blood of the Lamb. James is not saying this because it's not possible for you to get control of your mouth. He's saying this because in this world, it sure seems like nobody has control of their tongue. And that's absolutely true. And it's still true today. You could even say we actually do have control of our tongues now. We just have... We just control them by using them for evil, right? Like the conscience that says, I should really not speak evil of my brethren. Like that conscience is seared, charred, not fleshy or sensitive at all, just dead. All the nerves in it are just dead, just numb. Verse 9 says, with it, our tongues, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men. And the second part of this is the who have been made in the similitude of God. It's appreciated. I had a friend years ago who used to remind us of this all the time. It's like, this is what James is saying is this. Listen, everyone look at me. Look at me. I want to make sure you get this. Look at me. When you slander someone else, You are slandering someone, something that has been made by God in His image. How can you say, I love God, and then slander or gossip about the one thing, the one and only thing in this creation of which it can be said, God's image. Men and women are image bearers of God equally. The book of Genesis teaches right from the beginning. We're taught that. God made man in his image. He took a rib out of man and made woman because nothing else that he had made was compatible, comparable. So now you have men and you have women and they are together the only things that God has made that bear His image. And when you slander one of them, you remember that God made them in His own image. That ought to help you get control of the rudder. That ought to help you grab a little better onto the bridle and and, and turn the bit, right? That ought to help you to be a little more careful about the campfire, right? You remember, you remember that it's preposterous, it's the height of hypocrisy to say, God, I love you. Oh, I love God. God, you're so powerful. God, you're so wonderful. And then immediately turn around and slander another human, especially a brother or a sister. Because the brother or sister is not only made in the image of God, but the brother or sister has been regenerated through the same Holy Spirit as you. And and we speak against them. This is why he says not many of you should become teachers. Because people have such a brutal time controlling their mouths. And teachers stand for a stricter judgment. 
He's not saying that to suppress teachers. He's saying, count the cost. You make sure you do it right. You get this under control. You get this under control. You as a Christian don't go around ripping other Christians. You don't go around ripping other people. You don't buy into the culture that just, you know, goes on the the social media, goes on this, goes on that, and just trashes this, trashes that, trashes that. It's entertainment, like a fun, like a hobby. Like who's the best at just tearing other people down? No place for that in this group. No place for that among the body of Christ. Because, you know, you don't like Donald Trump, you don't like Hillary Clinton. Made in God's image. Something to think about, right? Something to think about. Listen, forget the politicians. You don't like him. You don't like him. You have doubts about her. You have doubts about him. Right here. Right here in the room. Not only made in God's image, but saved by his grace. What's the beginning of the passage say? We all stumble in many things. Hey, guess what? Your brothers, your sisters, your pastor, your deacons, your Sunday school teachers, they all stumble in many things. But we've got to get our mouths under control. We can't praise God and curse men who have been made in God's image. There's so much good you can do with your mouth. You can speak and build people up. You can speak and you can encourage. You can speak and make someone who's miserable happy. You can speak and you can point someone to... What about, that, what about that song that Isabella was singing up here? Right? You, you can say things like that to people. You know? Sometimes these difficult things you have in life, that might just be God, maybe kind of disguised to you because of where you're at, but even He's gracious even with that. But you know, that might just be God allowing that because there's something about you that that he loves you and he needs to grow up. Is there anything false, first of all, let's start there. Is there anything false about what I just said? Is that empty sentiment or is that sound theology? Do I understand the Bible right? I think I do. See, that's something you can do with your mouth. You can build somebody up. You can remind them that God loves them. You can remind them that the thing that's hard in their life didn't catch God by surprise. You can remind them that maybe even God's going to make them go through, allow you to go through something hard for a while. You can remind them what the Bible says. We all go through various trials. Turn to God. Ask Him for wisdom. Believe. Believe. Find wisdom for the trial. Make your requests known to Him. Get His peace that passes all understanding. You know, you can steer them, guide them that way with your mouth. But when you know of the brother or sister who's struggling hard, the parent who's having a hard time with their kids, the person who's having a hard time in their marriage, the person who's having a hard time with their body or, or a relationship or getting their, getting their, their, their finances undergo, whatever it is, hard time with a work ethic. Or hard, what do you do? You find other Christians and go and stir the pot, fan the flames, Dredge it up even more. But do you remember that God made them in His own image? God redeemed them by the same blood that saved you. God sealed them with the same Spirit that saved you. And if there's something to be dealt with, 
you go to, ready? Here's a revolutionary thought. You have a problem with someone, you go to them. Wait a minute. That's actually biblical, isn't it? Matthew chapter 18. If your brother or sister sins against you, you go to him. And and it specifically says this. You tell him his fault. What's the next word? Alone. It actually says alone. There comes a time to bring other people into the discussion. You got a problem with someone. You go to them and you tell it to them. And if you're talking about it to other people and you haven't gone to them, you are sinning. I know God is gracious. I know God is patient. He's gracious with their sin. He's gracious with yours. Thank God that He's gracious with our sins. That's not some license for you, though, to go and continue to do it. You use your words. Listen, it's simple, guys. You use your words to bring about good, not to stir up evil. Isn't that really all James is trying to say? Don't become a teacher if you can't control your mouth. If all you do with your words is stir up trouble, you got no business teaching anyone else. When you grow to the point where you can use your words for good, now you're grown up enough where you can think about teaching other people. Isn't that it, basically? There's more to it. As I've already said, there's more next week. Part of this. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. Did you think about that? God bless you. Then, then when you're with somebody else, the same person that you just said, God bless you, do you're tearing them up. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Why does he say that? Because he's just stating a fact and thank God for his grace. No, he says these things ought not to be so because he wants you to stop doing it. Going through life as a Christian is hard enough without being able to trust that your brothers and sisters have your back. Verses 11 and 12. Does the spring bring forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Show me that spring. Show me the spring where one side of the pool has fresh water that you can drink and the other side of the pool is... No. There's no such dichotomy. If it's pure, it's totally pure and drinkable. If there's any bitterness at all, the whole thing is bitter. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Everyone shake your head no. 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 That, 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 that alludes to what? You know it by its fruit. If the fruit is wicked speech... Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. So the first water illustration was drinkable and bitter. The second one is salt water and fresh. In either case, they don't mix in the same place. Neither should blessing and cursing with your mouth. We ought to try to make our words all good. Then we can think about being teachers. And some of you, as Hebrews says, ought to be teachers by now. But here you go. You've got to bridle your tongue. There is no single more self-destructive force. We're talking here about self-control versus self-destruction. There is no single more self-destructive force, self-destructive force among a body of Christians than slander and gossip and evil speaking and hypocrisy and lying, etc., etc., etc. It shows what the spring is really spitting out. Now, if you go to God, in whom there is all, with whom there is all power and all grace and all mercy and all love, a God who is for you, 
A God who is for you in ways that you probably never even think about. A God that is for you, wanting you to grow up and be a blessing. A God that is behind you and for you and longing for you to produce good fruits, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, wanting you. If you go to that God and say, God, help me to get this under control. God, help me only to use my words to bless. God, if I have a problem with a brother or sister, let that be between me and that brother and sister and not everybody else. Your God will hear that prayer. Your God will be that river of strength in you from which to draw to worketh His righteousness. Jed Namie, come on up. Take these things in. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, let's be doers of it now and not hearers only. Stand up. Let's sing our last hymn.